So here we are. We finally managed to set this up. Yeah. I'm so happy. Well, I'm delighted to be here, to be able to exchange some thoughts with you. Mm-hmm. Which I, I would like for you, I know you go by Vivi. Yes. And people know you that way. But I would like for you to say your whole name for me. I may try to say it once. Um. <laughs> okay. It is Varadaraja. Okay. Va- v. Raman. All right. I will probably but, say it once. Yeah, oh, that's fine. It's actually it's all A's. Therefore, there are mm-hmm. uh, what five? Uh, mm-hmm. Va ra da ra ja. There right. are five. All right. Well, and I have yeah. you on tape saying it so I can practice. Yeah. Um, let me tell you how I think this might go. Okay. I think what I'd like to do is start out by just having you tell me a bit of your story of your childhood and you know your the religious background of your of your mm-hmm. life your family okay. um and culture that you grew up in and okay. uh and then sort of t- tell a bit of you know keep going in your story to training in scientist and becoming a scientist okay. as well and I'd like okay. to talk about science and religion first, and then in okay. that way circle back into Hinduism, okay. which I think many people don't know. But kind of, yeah. let's establish some more, um, sure. and then and get into it that way. And I know that for you, there's not a conflict; it's a it's an interplay. Yeah. And I think to yeah. to to bring it out that way and to describe it that way will be interesting. Now, if that's not the way this unfolds, that's fine. But that's kind of how I how I, I have think it in my that head. sounds. Quite uh, nice, okay. good way of and we'll looking just, at it. And then we'll just see because I, it's you know the conversation can yeah. surprise us, and that's fine yeah, too. Yeah, it can. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we will be going from two to three, or um, I mean, our time, or how will it go? We will. We I think we have an hour and a half booked, and we'll okay. see. We'll see how much time we need. The great okay. thing about this is that we're not live. Um, yeah. We get to have a real conversation. It can ramble a bit if it needs to. We can yeah. circle back if you want to come back to a subject. Edit later. Yeah. So um, so we have extra time, and we may or may not use all that time, but it's nice to have that, I think. Very good. And no, the reason I asked was mm-hmm. just uh, if I have to take a gulp of water. Oh, or no, something. no. That's fine. You can stop, and you can... Yeah. You can, yeah. you know, you, you don't have to be word perfect because this we okay. can edit it and we'll make you sound yeah. fantastic. So if you uh, <laughs> okay, okay. if you misspeak or something, we'll edit that out. You don't have yeah. to. Uh, okay. I don't That's think you misspeak very often. Thank though, you. So. <laughs> well, no, it's uh, only uh, if uh, I pause mm-hmm. for. Uh, That's absolutely, and I may yeah. do the same. <laughs> now yeah. I think Mitch is my producer behind the glass, and I think he's saying you're saying we're all right, Mitch. You do you have Dr. Robin's voice? Okay. All right. So. Um, uh, you were born in Calcutta, mm-hmm. and your family was a Tamil family who set, that settled that's, in that's Bengal. Right. When, how yeah. old were you when you left Calcutta? When I first left Calcutta, it was I was twenty-three, mm. but I've been there many, many times since, well, quite regularly. And I mean, tell me something. Tell me about the religious. Uh, culture of your family, of your upbringing? Um, excuse me. Have we started it formally? Yes, yes, yes. We're starting. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I come from uh, two traditions, one might almost say, the Tamil and the Sanskritic as far as Hinduism is concerned. 
I say this because Hinduism, as you know, is a vast and complex system of beliefs, practices, and uh, it would be presumptuous on the part of anyone to be speaking on behalf of uh, the faith system as a whole. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also there is no established institution in the Hindu world which prescribes the doctrines of the religion, and nor is there any authority for that matter to ostracize, uh, excommunicate anybody. Right, but I think and, Hindu is unusual among the other large religions, isn't it? That there's no founder and there's no single uh, identifiable historical point of absolutely. origin. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, this has, uh, there are two reasons for this, it seems to me, this total freedom, as it were. One certainly is, as you said, there is no single historical founder. There are several whom Mm -hmm. we call the rishis. But more importantly, there is the deep conviction or belief, uh, or the framework is this, that whereas we may all be enriched and informed and inspired by the wisdom of the sages, the tradition, Ultimately, when it comes to a question of God and spirituality, each person has to seek and cope with the mysteries on his own terms, her Mm -hmm. own terms, Mm -hmm. and come to some uh, whatever is fulfilling for that person. This essentially is the reason why there is this what to the outsider might seem uh, a pretty lax religious framework. (laughs) So come back then. I come from this Tamil and Sanskritic tradition. I say that because there are many, many others, but these two are uh, amongst the very strong pillars of what may be called classical Hinduism. Tamil and and what? Tamil and? And Sanskrit. Oh, and Sanskrit. Sanskrit. All right, yes. Yeah. I say this because I think practically uh, 80 to 90 percent of all the uh, what one may call scriptures or uh, uh, aphorisms and poetry and wisdom uh, statements, the epics, they're all written principally in these two languages. Mm-hmm. And uh, I uh, was very, I consider myself fortunate to have inherited both these uh, traditions in the, from the Hindu world. But then beyond that, as I grew up, I uh, became uh, interested and really very absorbed in science and in physics in particular, so that I uh, have come to regard myself as, uh, as an inheritor of two great traditions, as I see it. <laughs> One, the Hindu tradition mm-hmm. on the religious plane, and other, the scientific tradition, which I regard as one of the greatest intellectual and spiritual triumphs in the history of humankind, not always regarded as such. Right. So I have the greatest respect for both. And, you know, you've lived in, in the United States. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. There, I think that the engineer is going to come in and adjust something um, oh, okay. at your end. So. Uh, are you able to hear me I'm, clearly? I'm fine. I'm, what I'm just sorry. Is your leg hitting the table or is the table getting hit by chairs or anything? Oh, okay. I hear, once in a while, I hear a little thump. I just want to make sure that nothing's being hit. That's all. Oh, okay. Sorry. Okay. Do you have anything rattly on you? 
Oh, just leave oh, me. I That's what I'm hearing. Oh. Um, I'm pinged off. Okay. I don't know what this is. Do you have nice hey, buttons on your jacket? Thank you. All righty. You should be good. You need to drink a water or anything? Brack on open now. Your lips sound yeah. just a little, you know, a little bit of a smack right now. So oh, okay. Have you, uh, Krishna, have mm-hmm. you seen that movie Singing in the Rain? The, oh, yeah. Yes. The, the, there, there is a scene in which they are trying to first introduce this sound effect and uh, in the movies, and this woman's heartbeat is also recorded there, and it's a very funny scene, <laughs> and then they redo the whole thing, it's somewhat like that. Well, that's a nice part. We can take the break here. So yeah. Yeah, sir. No, no, here this is go. absolutely Here's fine. Water. I got cracked for you, and we should be good to go. So. Okay, thank you. So how long have you been in the United States? Okay. Well, you, uh, I have been here for almost uh, four decades, right. 40 years. And you're so an American I, citizen I, as well. Yes, okay. I'm very much. That is another of the two traditions uh, right. very dear to me, right. the American and the Indian. Yeah. So, you know, it's... I'm very aware that in our public life, the debate that takes place, and it is often cast as a debate in U.S. culture between science and religion, is very much cast in theistic terms and principally in Christian terms. And I wonder how you, as a scientist who is Hindu and also American, how do you, how do you watch this debate and how do you approach its premises uh, differently? Well, uh, I can say two things. First, my own observations on what is happening, let's say, here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, everything, these have historical roots, of course, as you well know. Uh, In the West, in the Christian and American uh, framework especially, because of the history of especially in the uh, soon after the Middle Ages and the 17th, 18th centuries, the kinds of religious persecution that went on. I mean, it started all the way with, uh, uh, you know, the time of Calvin and later on there were uh, Mm. the Huguenots and all those things, the Puritan. And so America was founded largely, I mean, many people who came here actually escaped religious persecution, as you know, and therefore... With the emergence of enlightenment and the freedom to think and the separation of church and state, these things are very much in the psyche of Americans to this day. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the guardians of freedom of thought and freedom to think and freedom of religion, they are very much afraid every time religion pops up, especially in the political context. Right. Uh, And this uh, has all kinds of ramifications and sometimes, from my perspective, exaggerated uh, uh, expressions. Uh, Now, this sort of thing, fortunately, was not there in the Hindu world. For sure, there were sectarian conflicts, theological differences, and so on. But we did not have... uh, the kinds of bloodbaths and persecutions that are unfortunately, sadly, part of the religious history of Christendom. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the conflict is not as severe. Secondly, and this is an equally important point, 
science in the modern sense, the post-Copernican, Galilean, Newtonian science, came first in Western Europe. And clearly the theology, the theological basis and the explanatory models of traditional religions were not exactly compatible what scientists were beginning to discover. Mm-hmm. And so when there were discussions, open discussions, the conflicts were inevitable. In the Hindu world, fortunately, uh, this did not happen for two reasons. One, the, there was a clear understanding of what constitutes religious knowledge, insight, experience on the one hand, mm-hmm. and what may be called uh, intellectual, analytical, secular knowledge. This distinction is much more clear, it seems to me, in the Hindu world, which is why we don't have this kind of conflict. So in your way of seeing the world, then, as a Hindu, um, is there never a conflict? Um, There's a distinction and yet not a divide, not a conflict between... Exactly, and that is because the way I... Uh, personally see it, mm-hmm. the one t- often talks about cognitive dissonance, for example. Mm-hmm. Now, I rather call it an experiential consonance. And what I mean by that is that it is possible to distinguish between what we understand and explain in the logical and analytical framework, Mm -hmm. which is what science provides, and to distinguish it from another level of experiencing the world, which comes from uh, what may be called deep involvement. It is not unlike enjoying music on the one hand right and and then proving a geometrical theorem uh, you can do Those are both, two kinds not, of right these are two kinds mm-hmm. of experience and mm-hmm. the human uh, psyche is so uh, the human spirit if my use the word mm-hmm. is so complex and the human dimension that we have all kinds of possibilities and one of the Unfortunate consequences to me, as I see it, of the successes of the sciences, although it started much earlier even with St. Thomas and so on in Christianity, is this what I may call addiction, as it were, uh, to rationality. An addiction to rationality. By which I mean that every single aspect of human experience must be subjected to rigid rationality. Mm. Now, I personally have never done, I I have the greatest respect for reason and rationality, but I also think of, uh, uh, you know, from the ecclesiastics, you may say, to everything that is a season and a time, to every purpose under heaven, uh, uh, which has been articulated by thinkers through the ages uh, in all 
uh, cultures, I would say. Uh, when Pascal wrote his famous statement, you know, le cœur a ses raisons que la raison ne connaît pas, the heart has its reasons which reason doesn't understand. Those are ways uh, by which the, uh, I think the enlightened uh, thinkers and visionaries understood that the world is far too complex for us to really rigidly uh, put everything under the straitjacket of reason, as it were. Right. You know, you you make a point in in something you've written um, that that reflects a, an observation I've made that so much of our cultural debate about science and religion seems to assume that science and religion. Uh, pose competing answers to the same questions, but in fact they pose different questions. And you also um, note that in Tamil there's a distinction linguistically between why as a causative question, the way science might ask why of a problem, and why as a teleological question, the way religion might ask it. I thought that was very interesting. I I think it's a very, very important distinction because both kinds of why are important in that the human mind cannot escape those questions. We are intrigued by many. And we start uh, asking uh, those questions from a very young age, don't we? I mean? Very young age. <laughs> and, but the, the languages uh, influence sometimes our way of thinking because when we talk, uh, as I gave that example, I sometimes ask my students, uh, why are you taking this course? Uh, some students may say because it is required uh, in my uh, curriculum. Others may say because I want to learn what you are going to uh, talk about. Mm-hmm. Now, you see, these two answers both are legitimate answers to the same question, but the first answer implies a framework in which the student is operating. Right. It's kind of a the logical second, framework, right? The, mm-hmm. uh, that is, uh, but the second is a purposeful, mm-hmm. a teleological, the second one, mm-hmm. because I want to learn. It's in the future. Mm-hmm. Whereas the first one is because that's how the rules are, are set up. Mm-hmm. So uh, we can interpret the world in terms of the laws and principles that are responsible for whatever is occurring or in terms of why something is occurring as a future uh, destination or a future purpose. So these two are very different questions, it seems, to our interpretations. And that needs to be, and both questions are relevant, interesting, uh, except that, as I see it, the question about why, in the deeper sense of what is the purpose of this universe, why am I here, and why was this... uh, uh, the world created at all? Why are the laws such as they are? Those are very fundamental questions for which we may never be able to find uh, answers which are unanimously uh, acceptable. Mm -hmm. I sense also from from knowing your work that you have a you hold in very high esteem the universality, which is kind of an ethic and a virtue of science as a discipline, and that that is very compatible with 
um, a sensibility about universality that runs through Hindu thought. Would that be would that be correct the, to say? You are absolutely right. I when I uh, and I will uh, elaborate on that mm-hmm. a little. Uh, I want to make it uh, clear that when I talk about the Hindu framework, it is by no means. To, I, I don't expect my listeners to uh, become Hindus. That's not the idea. Right. But rather to show, I re- sincerely believe that every religious framework has a lot of wisdom, has much to contribute to humanity. Now, the Hindu uh, religion or framework has some very, very interesting and important things to give also. But most of all, the universality you refer to and science is certainly the uh, a tremendously uh, powerful uh, enterprise in terms of uh, its uh, results, its applications. But more importantly, I believe modern science is the first universal enterprise in the true sense of the term because Scientists form an international community right, right. of brotherhood and sisterhood, and they, it is transnational, transracial. And always has trans- been. It, well, well, it became so in especially the uh, in our own times. Mm-hmm. You see, the, one of the founders of the Royal Society actually wrote that he would uh, hope that someday all the nations of the world would join together in this scientific game, as it were. Mm -hmm. And truly, in our own times, that has happened. And it's a matter for rejoicing. Mm -hmm. I feel uh, that, unfortunately, because of the byproducts of science uh, and the unhappy uh, byproducts of technology, more exactly, uh, that is a strong anti-science feeling and also because of the complexity of the technicality of science, mm-hmm. uh, people are turned off. But uh, you know very well and uh, that those who have really uh, taken the time to appreciate and enjoy even the results of science have only been enriched. And so uh, I truly believe that science is not to be characterized in terms of uh, uh, you know, American science, Western science, Chinese science, and so on. Uh, up to a point, it's okay in terms of where something started. But science is as much uh, Western as uh, the zero is Hindu. <laughs> okay, right. Uh, right. I'd like to, um, you know, I think it is striking. I believe you and I have spoken about this when we've met originally in the past, that although Hinduism is the third largest world religion after Christianity and Islam, it's the least known. Um, It's the least in the headlines, (laughs) partly for positive, you know, because it's not so much making the news in so many negative ways these days. But um, it's not as well known in U.S. culture, even as Buddhism, which which grew of Hinduism. So, you know, I'd like to, as we continue speaking, I'd like to try to understand, um, I'd, like, I'd like to try to understand more about Hinduism. And, you know, starting with the fact that you're speaking about the universality of Hinduism, but I think that 
if people have images at all in their heads, if they don't know anything, but they have a picture of Hinduism, it is of this multitude of deities. Um, and that does not evoke um, universality, and nor does it evoke a religion that is compatible with logical thinking. So, you know, talk to me about how you would re- yeah. you respond to those kinds of stereotyped images that are out there. Or impartial, let's say. Sure. And I think that is every reason for that misunderstanding. And mm-hmm. we know also how easy it is for for Hindus to misunderstand things about other cultures. These things are natural. However, perhaps the greatest misconception about Hinduism is regarding this monotheism idea. Mm-hmm. And I want to explore that a little bit. Uh, as you know, the one of the uh, uh, fundamental scriptures of Hinduism is uh, uh, known as the Vedas, the mm-hmm. Rig Veda, for mm-hmm. instance. And in the Rig Veda, the most important uh, aphorism or statement that is often quoted by many Hindus when they... Uh, uh, discourse on these matters. Oh, Dr. Raman, uh, I, I have to say, what you're, the paper, um, I, there's, I think yeah. there's some paper moving, and we hear that. And, um, oh, sorry. Yeah. So it, but I just, you know, I want to hear all this in your own words, and yeah. I don't know if you, but if you could... Yeah, um, no, the, okay. the thing is, I, I was uh, trying to, I had a quote from the Vedas. Oh, okay, all right. If, but you, I if think, you have a quote like that, then... Um, Take yeah. a, don't pu- pull it out when you're not speaking, and and, yeah. uh, and okay. that way it won't come through. Because I just want to be well, able to use. I see. Okay, okay. it All is right. simply the following. The quote is: "Truth is one, and the people call it by different names." Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Sanskrit, the word "truth" or Sat, it's called ekam sat, that is but one truth. And that's the same word that's also used for God. Mm. So there is but one God, but that God is described by different names. Now, this is a very important idea, and the way I like to look at it is as follows. If we talk about music... And somebody asks, is there music? And as long as one is not deaf, one would say, yes, there is music. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, how much, how many music are there? Right. Even the question doesn't sound right. That's a very good analogy. However, in order for anybody to understand or appreciate music, one can only do it in terms of a particular song or sonata or mm-hmm. a concert or, a or whatever. Or mm-hmm. Or any genre mm-hmm. of music mm-hmm. and a particular piece mm-hmm. in specifically. Now, the Hindu gods are to me somewhat like different pieces of music. And so, and it also emphasizes the idea that God is much more than something or some person that one uh, speaks of in terms of physical attributes. 
but rather it is something to be experienced and the idea of spiritual experience is what is uh, conveyed through the analogy of music mm-hmm. and through the the hindu gods the variety so of you, melody and the sheer tempo variety and, right right and just as you would say uh what is your favorite song probably everybody would have their own favorite music favorite mm-hmm. piece mm-hmm. likewise in the hindu world there is something called a favorite god Right. Believe it or not, it is called Ishta Devata. No, oh, I have heard ma- that that people tend to identify very strongly. Yes, and they have a special regard for that particular depiction mm-hmm. of the intangible. Mm-hmm. Every god is actually uh, is simply a, a representation. In fact, there is another Hindu uh, uh, maxim or. Uh, uh, sloka which says essentially that uh, there is but uh, the mode of uh, worshiping is through an idol to begin with okay you see mm-hmm. prathama prathima the first one is through an idol or an imagery or a, yeah, an icon mm-hmm. and then from there you go on to concentration and meditation and at the final stage you recognize yourself as part of the cosmic whole hmm. so that, those are the stages of worship and therefore to uh, for the outsider when we see these modes and they are very meaningful but they are not any different if you want to give an analogy uh than having different saints in the catholic tradition right. who are worshiped on different days for example right. every and day except you so thought, yeah you also write about um a fundamental insight of hinduism that also finds expression in this multiplicity of tradition and gods that this fundamental insight that there are no simple answers to complex questions and you know that's a that's an important insight for our time <laughs> in every uh, sphere of life <laughs> in fact my my own personal view is that the 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 religious experience is precisely in the experience of that mystery there is in the human life uh a certain mystery uh, surrounding all of this mm-hmm. and it is the experience of that mystery even if it is only momentary and even if it is only for a few minutes every day as for example when i uh, do my meditation or whatever that experience is what constitutes uh, the religious experience as soon as we unravel that mystery in words and in formulations that becomes in my view the doctrine of a religion right because the uh, many of the religious doctrines are profound answers to the mysteries and they become interesting and important more in historical and and uh, geographical terms right. rather than in ultimate terms but you're saying that the that that experience of mystery always 
in some sense eludes and transcends the doctrine that it became? Uh, absolutely. Mm. And the doctrine may be uh, may answer within a religious framework some of the mysteries. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that it gives fulfillment to the practitioners, I have no problems with that. But uh, but taking that to be universal, again, is not wrong right, right. as long as one does not impose that mm-hmm. on other people who may have different answers to the mysteries. Right. See? And, yeah. I, <clears throat> you know, I'd like to ask you about some key ideas, notions in Hinduism and, and how what they mean to you, also how you live them and experience them as a scientist. Um, and one of those, and again, this is one of the few words I think that many people in a Western culture, culture know from Hinduism, and is karma. And I'd love to know, you know, what karma means for you, and also, you know, how do you reconcile that kind of idea with what you know as a physicist? Okay, there are uh, an associated word, which I think is equally important in the Hindu world, and which has come into uh, the West with uh, different connotations is dharma. Dharma, yes. Now, dharma, uh, very simply put, dharma is what we are expected to do, and karma is what we do, uh, very hmm. simplistically. Hmm. Uh, dharma has been translated variously as duty, as religion, and so on, or more exactly as an ethical framework. And there are many treatises uh, in classical Hinduism which talk of dharma in different ways. One of them, for example, lists such things as uh, uh, mercy and temperance, adherence to logic, the pursuit of knowledge, the pursuit of truth, not getting angry. And uh, uh, these are some of the kinds of... uh, uh, ethical principles. Kind of which essential are, virtue is what. E- essential virtues. Mm-hmm. And, and the Hindu world distinguishes between two kinds of dharma. One is called the eternal dharma, often called sanatana dharma, mm-hmm. which refer to the eternal ethical principles. And then there is another thing called the yuga dharma or the contextual dharma, Hmm. which changes from time to time and place to place. They can range everything from what you are expected to eat on what day to how you greet someone. These things are also formalized in the dharma. There's also a phrase of contextual theology. That would be a counterpart. Exactly. It's a a similar idea. Mm -hmm. And... uh, the the dharma that is uh, most uh, often uh, uh, is practiced or which is said to be the crucial one is the pursuit of truth and in many instances uh, you know if you if one quotes from uh, uh, some of the texts there is everything from being uh, uh, kind to others and being respectful of, to parents, those kinds of things. Now, karma is a metaphysical concept which is the Hindu answer to what is sometimes called the problem of evil. Karma and, is a response to the problem of evil. Yes, hmm. in this sense. And because evil in the, in the sense of theodicy mm-hmm. term, 
coined, as you know, by Leibniz mm-hmm. uh, in answer to, uh, you know, the French philosopher Bale, I think, who talked about how can you say that God is just and and good and kind when you see all these things, uh, earthquakes and right. natural disasters. So that is the problem of evil and different uh, con- uh, cultures have come up with different answers. The Hindu answer is evil in the sense of suffering ultimately is a consequence of one's own actions. And if you are to explain uh, why different people are beneficiaries of different things or are victims of different things, it is only because these are consequences of their previous actions. So karma by itself is any consequential action, any action that has an impact, positive or negative, on yourself or on others. And how do no, you, yeah, yeah. I, I just, you know, and I, and I wonder how do you, and, and um, implicit in that is, is a belief in, in reincarnation or in many lives, absolutely. that life is not I, this linear I, one-time I, thing. Absolutely. Uh, the, it is, we cannot explain that. We talk of people getting away with murder. The Hindu idea is one not. Uh, forever. Okay, so that, you might get away with murder in the moment, but in fact this you don't. time, but you will again. So the the idea of the transmigration or the reincarnation mm-hmm. is uh, inevitable in the framework of karma. Now, the way I uh, interpret is uh, the karma doctrine is as follows. There are two ways of uh, the. Uh, there, there are two conflicting ideas in any system as to how things happen. One is one may be called fatalism or determinism, mm-hmm. something that is predetermined. It was so ordained, or as the Persian poet put it, uh, Omar Khayyam, the first dawn of creation wrote what the last day of reckoning shall read. Hmm. So everything is etched. And that's why these things are happening. Now, this raises a serious moral question as to, uh, you know, a a criminal may say that, well, uh, it's not my fault. Uh, You know, this was preordained. To which the judge may say, it's not my fault that you should be thrown into prison. And that is also preordained. So that's a trivial uh, dilemma. The more serious thing is, do we have what we call free will. Mm-hmm. Can we determine uh, what is uh, a course of action, choose between different courses of action? I find the karma doctrine very helpful as an interesting synthesis of both these. Huh. Why? Because what has happened was preordained, but it was not preordained by an arbitrary god but by oneself in a previous birth. Okay. So at the very least, it makes one take responsibility for one's suffering rather than point the finger at someone else or and, at some... And is the idea that, that though you in this life are, are living with the consequences of previous actions, the way you live this life will, exactly. could determine a better future? 
absolutely. So you have the choice is there, mm -hmm. the free will is there, but also fatalism in the sense of this is what happened because mm -hmm. of what was so it is an interesting uh, way of handling this uh, uh, conceptual difficulty you know uh, for the injustices and, now, and I want to know yeah. though how how you think about that how you hold that belief with everything you know about um, physics and and cosmology uh, as a scientist, and you know, how would you be able to talk about that with a fellow scientist in a way that would seem legitimate to them? No, I don't think I can argue for right uh, the, for reincarnation from a scientific perspective. Quite honestly, although I know there are people who have done research and who on this question and who who have quoted. Uh, uh, you know, cases where people have vague memories and all that. And I have to confess that uh, as a physicist, I will leave that open. I, I do not uh, have any firm uh, convictions as to the mysteries of uh, post-mortem existence. Okay. See, I, I take that as uh, uh, a kind of... Uh, uh, one of the mysteries right. for which I don't know uh, the answer, and I rather suspect many others who claim to know uh, may not be knowing. Well, and just as people of other traditions uh, have ideas about faith, about the afterlife, um, and this is not unique yeah, yeah. to Hinduism, that, it's, just, and, it's different uh, from uh, the Western. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's a different, uh, uh, but I do subscribe to the modifying Hamlet, uh, slightly, I would say there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our sciences. Mm -hmm. see? And mm -hmm. it's, uh, this is not to say that it's a limitation of science, but rather to say there are mysteries yet to be solved or uh, unfathomed. Uh, we don't know. Mm -hmm. see? You know, I had a really interesting conversation last year with um, Paul Davies an Australian mm -hmm. bio uh, astrobiologist. Yes, yes. I'm sure you very, know him. Very well known. Yes, yes I know. And we had a we had an interesting exchange about um, Einstein's understanding of time, and how because in in that view of time uh, that view of the of the physical world time had a beginning, that also means that there's left open this idea of before time and beyond time, even in physics. Is no. that something that resonates with you with your religious ideas at all? Well, again, from the Hindu perspective, uh, if I have to somehow relate it to, to current cosmologies, you know, there is one uh, view of the universe which is not very popular now, and that, I mean, in terms of cosmology, and that is what one calls the oscillating universe. And that is that the universe. Uh, the expanding universe, as you know, may sometimes, there may come a time when it will start contracting, and like the Big Bang, there will be the big crunch, and then it will start all over again. And the universe has been going on, doing this uh, uh, indefinitely. Now, the Hindu view is somewhat similar in that that is the concept of the yuga or cycle of time. Mm -hmm. uh, and they, uh, of course, needless to say, it is associated with other uh, 
uh, sometimes uh, mythological views also. But essentially, conceptually, what it's, it resolves the problem of time by saying that time uh, did not have an origin, but that it has been there uh, without beginning and without end, except there are beginnings and ends of phases Hmm. during which the universe emerges and collapses. Okay. And this is a never-ending process. I see. And that, in a way, uh, is certainly more uh, logically or conceptually satisfying uh, than to say time simply started with the Big Bang, uh, even though from a physics point of view, that's a valid statement by which one means that the laws of physics and the universe such as we know happened uh, at a particular uh, right. uh, instant, which right. was also the birth of time. Right. Uh, so th that's a very, there's a difference between a physical time and a conceptual time because it is possible conceptually to go back in time, go back beyond the Big Bang. Okay. You, you can imagine that. Mm -hmm. But physicists would say, no, there was no such thing as time, and that's the physical time. So something else I'd like to ask you about, um, you, you write about in the Hindu framework, there's a goddess who gives words and language and music and numbers. Saraswati, is that how you would say Yes. Um, so talk to me about how you live with a piece of mythology like that and live with what you know, again, about the physical universe, about numbers, <laughs> especially? The, uh, <clears throat> I, you know, we don't use the word mythology anymore in the sense that, uh, you see, mythology becomes a kind of fairy tale sort right, of thing. Right. I, 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 so, the implication in our culture yeah. is it's something that's not uh, true. I don't, yeah. I don't use the word but, that way, but... Yes. Yeah, but I, I understand what you're mm -hmm. saying. It's perfect, and I, mm -hmm. I would be the first to say that it's part of Hindu mythology. If you want, mm -hmm. want, want for the outsider, that's mm -hmm. no question. But there is something called mythopoesy, or something called sacred history. These are parts of all the great religions of the world, and the the poetic aspect is extremely important to me, because poetry is what gives meaning to existence. Not facts and figures and charts, but <laughs> poetry. Poetry goes, uh, poetry is essentially a, a very sophisticated way of experiencing the world. And it is much more than mere words and, uh, and stories mm -hmm. because it's somehow, uh, poetry is to the, the human condition, as it were, what the telescope and the microscope are to the scientists. Mm. Because those instruments enable us to become aware of aspects of the physical universe of which we would otherwise be totally unaware. Now, in the... In the mythopoeses of the world, uh, unaware the poetry, or just or unable to speak about them, right? And, and, and. You know, I'm talking about the physical world now. Okay. The physical world, we can't even we, we can never know 
the planet, uh, you know, the existence oh, of right. Neptune okay. mm-hmm. or uh, Uranus without the telescope. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. see, or about the uh, microorganisms okay. without the microscope. Okay. So just as they make us aware of aspects of the physical world of which we would not be aware with our ocular faculties alone, likewise, poetry makes us aware of aspects of the of the human condition which are hidden to us as it were from the uh, without the mythic vision without the poetic vision right so the way i look at it like with saraswati and uh, i do a meditation to saraswati for and this uh, is the goddess everyone yes mm-hmm. it's a god i find that uh, and there are images of uh, saraswati very beautiful uh, you know uh, a woman in a very uh, beautifully clothed in a sari and with a with uh, the veena the grand musical instrument of india mm. and a rosary as it were which corresponds to the counting the numbers and to me uh, it is an imagery that evokes reverence and respect not for the particular necessarily for the particular form in which it is depicted but for all those intangibles such as counting and number and music and knowledge and science which enrich human life and human culture and human civilization mm. and therefore it is it is uh, beautiful it's an aesthetic experience mm. to contemplate on uh, on something symbolic like that and i'm well aware that ultimately all these are symbols and that they may not be the uh, true uh, they may not reflect exactly what is out there but we live in uh, in symbols as long as we are cultural beings right. and uh, that is how i take it and uh, it does not uh, in any way uh, seem to bother me because uh, all it has had is something positive in me when we were at school I remember uh, we used to uh, do a prayer to Saraswati in school mm-hmm. every morning and even now I think there are many schools in India which do that and uh, somehow it made us uh, it inspired us to go through the days of learning uh, and uh, it hasn't quite frankly done me any harm <laughs> uh, because w- what I mean by that is I'm amazed at the kind of uh, objections people raise to having a moment of prayer in school in uh, in america now believe it or not i also went for some time to a jesuit school and i yes. uh, re- uh, repeated pater noster in latin that didn't do me any harm either right. as far as i can say these are inspi- inspired these are parts of great traditions and uh, and they can only infuse reverence and respect in the hearts of uh, children Mm. You, you've noted um that there's a fascinating importance of numbers in both science and religion yeah. and I'd like for you to say something about that uh because it is quite interesting when you when you start thinking about it well 
numbers uh, as you know are uh, in some ways mysterious in that uh, although we concretize them uh, when we count uh, objects and uh, and things and uh, days and hours and so on we uh, associate we uh, you know we talk of numbers always in reference to those here is another example of polytheism if you mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. because nobody can imagine numbers except in those concrete terms of counting right. and that numbers themselves are uh, uh, far more uh, uh, abstract uh, and uh, philosophers of mathematics have often wondered or argued about whether uh, numbers like uh, the so-called irrational numbers and transcendental numbers and and transfinite numbers do they have any reality it becomes quite mysterious doesn't it numbers they become, become mysterious mm-hmm. and and perhaps for that very precise reasons and uh, the practically all the traditions religious traditions of the world have incorporated numbers in different ways sometimes it may be due to a practical necessity or practical circumstance uh, uh, for instance we seldom consciously realize that our seven day week is related to the fact that the babylonians discovered seven celestial bodies which uh, move <laughs> differently from stars you know and they right. included the sun and the moon mm-hmm. uh, amongst the seven planets and if they had telescopes they had found uranus and neptune probably would have a nine day week mm-hmm. but uh, from that uh, we have the idea of the seven day creation and so on but numbers therefore intangible as they are have also something mysterious about them and my own feeling is that that may have been a reason why one way or another the religious traditions of human kind have incorporated numbers in specific ways hmm. in the scientific world uh, on the other hand numbers uh, play a very very different role and they are again uh, associated more with natural phenomena and with uh, specific uh, constructs or uh, structures of atoms or or atomic nuclei and talks of atomic numbers Mm. and talks of avogadro number and so on so numbers play uh, a different role in the sciences although i've always been fascinated in my conversations with scientists about how scientists find great beauty in in mathematics Yeah, um, absolutely. Now that it, is more it, much it, more it, than numbers. It's yeah. almost rapture, right? It's more than numbers, and yet numbers yeah. are the well. I don't know. Maybe that's my. <laughs> no, no, you are absolutely right. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. for the mathematician or for the physicist, the idea of numbers is uh, uh, more the, the idea of mathematics. You know, I think it was Sir James Jeans who said that God. uh for want of a better word maybe called mathematical thought right. or something <laughs> like that because uh, ultimately it is the mathematical beauty of the universe that uh, grabs i think the physicists especially not mm-hmm. may not be all scientists but physicists because mm-hmm. there is there is something uh, uh absolutely uh there's something aesthetic about the laws of electromagnetism for example uh formulated by maxwell uh, you know or the so called dirac equations and uh, 
so on. Mm. So that is very true. I'd like to ask you, we've been talking about how we've been talking about how your religious sensibility, how that relates to your scientific sensibility. I'd like to ask another question. You talked about how karma is is a Hindu response to the problem of evil. I wonder yeah. if your scientific knowledge and perspective also inform something like, let's say, your the way you think about the problem of evil in human life and even evil within religious traditions. The things you know as a, as a physicist that that give you more to work with as you make sense of that kind of personally. Uh, certainly, I think it is uh, my uh, in, involvement in physics and the sciences that has uh, given me uh, what I call a historical, cultural understanding of many of these enormously meaningful things in life. Uh, Because science, among other things, enables us to look at human events in human terms. Hmm. Uh, Religions uh, in their context enable us to look at human events in religious or trans-rational terms. Mm-hmm. And the uh, both, in a way, are meaningful and illuminating. It is as if, uh, again, to give you an analogy, if you read a sonnet, let us say, science is like the discovery of the rules of prosody, the rules by which the sonnet is constructed mm. of m- measure and syllable and the accent, iambic pentameter or whatever. Right. Appropriately, you can analyze the poem. And this understanding of the structure of the poem is a significant accomplishment, but it tells us nothing about the meaning behind the poem Mm -hmm. or about the inspiration that the poem might give. (laughs) And Mm. the universe to me is somewhat like that. Uh, We, science enables us to understand the laws and principles by which the universe is constructed or functions. And that is no trivial accomplishment. And I think it's one of the greatest intellectual achievements of the human mind is what modern science has been able to do. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, there is always the question of meaning. And while it is possible to derive meaning without going beyond the physical world, and many people do it, it is no less inspiring and fulfilling to find meaning within a religious framework insofar as it is not irrational. That's the difference between irrationality and transrationality. And to me, many of the deeper messages of of, uh, religions 
such as the values it does or must inspire us to, such as caring and compassion and respect for others, helping others, love, reverence. These are not rational. These are not irrational, but these are transrational. And they have their sources in the many religious frameworks of humankind. And that is why I think it would be uh, a sad day when religions, by which I mean the best in them, mm-hmm. are totally eliminated from the world. There are people who are hoping for it, who are working for it, who write books on it. But <laughs> I rather doubt that'll, uh, that on this planet there will ever come a time when there is no sacredness associated with Varanasi or Mecca or Bethlehem or Washington, D.C. for that matter. The uh, point being that there are, uh, there are historical and uh, uh, transcendental associations with places and names, and they, have, uh, uh, they not only carry the weight of centuries, and but they also have something deep in them, in the human cultural psyche. And yet, as you know, um, we unfortunately don't always just see the best of religions. And and I think that one reason language about um, what is transrational has a new kind of, carries a new kind of uh, sense of threat in our time because there's a lot of, a lot of violence being committed in the name of um, of God and transcendence. How do you how do you watch that, and how do you think about that? That is uh, a perennial problem. We I have uh, tried uh, naturally to articulate whatever is the best mm-hmm. and uh, illuminating in the religious traditions, uh, if only because there is ample evidence of whatever is worst in the uh, daily use. <laughs> you don't, nobody needs to articulate that. Yeah, and, yes. uh, and I can, uh, and it is depressing, it's really depressing that we live in an age when religions have become, uh, uh, have, are so associated with politics and violence and war and recriminations that uh, if anybody is to grieve for this, it should be the gods above. Mm. Uh, Because this is not what I believe religions uh, were meant to be. Uh, And uh, uh, it is true that in this context, it is extremely important for uh, the leaders, the intellectuals, and the thinkers of the world to... uh, speak out openly about all that is bad and evil that has come out of religions. But given that religion is such an intrinsic part of human culture and means so much to at least four, perhaps five billion human beings, what can be realistically done, in my view, is to if one may use the term, bring, uh, I was going to say tame, or bring out whatever is still good mm-hmm. and worthy in religions 
And for that, the leaders, of course, of uh, the religions should inculcate values which bring us all together. And there are many such that uh, uh, bring us together because, as I see it, uh, one, the most important thing is to accept this other Hindu insight, and that is the what I call the path of uh, or the uh, the doctrine of multiple paths. Right. You know, we always say uh, a prayer uh, to the effect that just as the the words of uh, uh, just as water falling from the uh, clouds take on different paths and go to the same sea. You know, waters falling from the sky return to the selfsame sea. Prostrations to every god go back to the same divinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a prayer which we were uh, taught in the initiation of, uh, you know, that is... Uh, like the Holy Communion or right. Bar Mitzvah, we have something. Uh, interesting enough, years later I saw, I, I read uh, a poem by Hermann Hesse who said somewhat the same thing. You know, he says, Strassen und Wege viel, aber alle haben dasselbe Ziel, meaning many paths and ways on earth there are and they all lead, but the goal they all have is the same indeed. So this is crucial, it seems to me, that we should uh, uh, inculcate uh, this notion of multiple paths. And that, I think, is the only, only hope uh, for humanity. Because it seems to me that uh, to be faithful and respectful of one's own culture is fine, and that's, that should be the case. But that does not mean that other people in other uh, cultures cannot have their own framework. You know, mm-hmm. We all respect and reverence the sun. The sun is our central star. Right. But it would be somewhat silly to think there's no other star and no other planetary system where those stars sustain life. And, it's and, almost as... Yeah, and yeah. Your, your life, I mean, you've, you have lived this, uh, this sensibility. I mean, you grew up in a very devout Hindu family, but you, as you say, you studied with Jesuits, you prayed the Paternoster, you, you also read the Quran and the Torah. Um, you've lived this, um, and yet, you know, there's a companion question that arises that I that I find you asking as a, as a central question of your life. And it's, it's not the same as uh, whether, all of the, whether all these paths are, can be honored and can, might be leading to the same place. But the question will be, why do people of goodwill hold opposing views on important issues? Because, you know, even if that is true, if there, is, if there are these undercurrents that, that all the great traditions share... Um, it doesn't bring us to the same place in space and time. <laughs> so I wonder if you, what's the answer, how do you, what's the answer you come to about that question, about why good people, and, and, and in our, our public life in this country right now is very much defined by opposing views on important questions. 
uh, I uh, that reminds me of uh, of uh, a small uh, story here. When I was a graduate student in Paris, I had the opportunity to meet Bertrand Russell, who was uh, uh, who had uh, I for whom I had the greatest respect, and I went to his hotel, and uh, we talked with him, saying I wanted to establish a Bertrand Russell Society to propagate the his uh, teachings of rationality right. and compassion, things like that. And he told me, well, uh, my friend, I don't think you have understood anything of what I have ta- been saying. And I was puzzled. And he said, as soon as you associate a name with a message, people will start worshipping that name and forget what the message is all about. Mm. And there was very great truth in that. And I think one of the advantages that Hinduism has in this regard is that it doesn't have a single person who established it. And therefore, one talks, at least at the, at the conceptual level, doctrinal level, about mm-hmm. the ideas and the spiritual quest and the, uh, the metaphysics and the meaningfulness of the religious life rather than talk in terms of that particular founder mm-hmm. and with the greatest respect and reverence for the great religious founders, I have to say that the followers completely forgot what the teachings were or there is every likelihood that they would forget. And in the name of this God or with, by this name or that uh, uh, person by that name, and they they uh, engage in activities which I am persuaded even the founders of the religions would find quite shocking. I want to keep talking for about 20 minutes. So I want you to take a glass oh. of a drink of water if you want. I think I'm wearing you <laughs> okay. out. Uh, okay, I was not sure. Okay, I'll just take a little water. Yeah, yeah. take some water because it's, we're... Thank you. I've got some here and I'm... Mm-hmm. 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 Um, okay. Okay. Um, although I think that in the last century there is a person who is who almost embodied Hinduism for many, and that would have been Gandhi. I mean, mm-hmm. Gandhi is still this amazing figure, um, influenced leaders of other religious traditions, uh, was revered by Einstein. Mm-hmm. And um, how, do you, how do you think about Gandhi as an Indian, uh, as a person born in India and, uh, and a Hindu? I'm curious about well, that personally. What does he mean for you? I, I belong to a generation which literally worshipped Gandhi, as it were. And uh, I was... Uh, in uh, high school when I attended what they used to call mass meetings uh, where Gandhi spoke when Mm -hmm. several hundred thousand people were there. And to me, Gandhi was extraordinary uh, in many, many ways. Uh, Most of all, he understood, I think, that basically that is uh, human beings are decent. 
and no matter what it is by trying to bring out whatever is good and noble in the human personality that we can resolve many complex problems now i will be the first to grant that this can be idealistic talk and in many instances it simply may not work and people have pointed out could you have applied non-violence to hitler and so on mm-hmm. but uh, but we need to strive for or at least try to see if we can resolve problems by peaceful means and by trying to be understanding of the opponent's point of view and that is the key to uh, coming from uh, from i mean from uh, religion and metaphysics to practical problems it seems to me that unless one tries to see our opponent's point of view and try to c- come to some understanding with that person we cannot solve any of the problems and uh, gandhi is a supreme example and i personally think i'm glad that there were people like martin luther king and nelson mandela to outstanding people in uh, right. later times who followed gandhi's path i myself think uh, with due respects to the complex problems that uh, this country is facing and president bush is facing unless there is an effort to extend a hand of friendship to our most virulent opponents invite them for conversations and see how best we can resolve all the mess that have come about as a result of doesn't matter whose fault mm-hmm. uh, there is really little hope that we can uh, resolve the complex problems of the world by continuing to escalate anger and hatred uh, and uh, however justified it may seem uh, from one uh, one's own perspective and that's that's for you the important legacy for gandhi of gandhi uh, right I, now i think so mm-hmm. and i think gandhi has become extraordinarily relevant i said mm-hmm. uh, i belong to a generation because uh, gandhi is not so highly regarded uh, today in many parts even of india mm-hmm. because of all the frustrations and uh, chaos that have been caused partly because of this uh, excessive uh, uh, effort to understand the opponent there are people who have argued that it is that uh, attitude which has resulted which created in, problems yeah mm-hmm. so we don't know it's a but i think uh, we can never give up ideals uh, if civilization is to last mm-hmm. and uh, you know another figure who is not in fact hindu but who many people associate with india is mother teresa and and mm-hmm. he, i think people even associate her with indian spirituality although she's catholic and was a, was a yeah. nun who came there from elsewhere now and also what she stands for what people associate with her is this extreme poverty that marks indian culture as deeply as the the incredibly deep and vast spirituality that just i wonder if you would speak to that apparent contradiction 
Well, this, as you know, cultures and nations change with time. Uh, it is true that from the 19th uh, century onwards, uh, the, uh, there, was, uh, there has been colossal poverty and misery in India. But if you just go back to the uh, early 17th century France and uh, consider the plight of the peasants mm. in France, which ultimately gave rise, as you know, to the French Revolution, mm -hmm. the situation was not much different. You see, th these, the economic condition of people can change with time and often does. As we are well aware, in the past 20, 30 years, the, the, the rise of the middle class mm -hmm. in India is uh, absolutely staggering, uh, impressive, and with uh, all kinds of uh, complex consequences. So I would not attach uh, the uh, I, I would not find this as any kind of an irony or uh, contrast and paradox uh, because that has always been there in all societies and they change the economic plight I guess what something though that stands out for me is that is that perhaps one could say that a dark side of the of hinduism which um which seems to me to defy this virtue of universality is is the caste system no, and no that that is a very important uh, point mm -hmm. now that that is different from the poverty aspect okay now we uh like uh, i i don't want to be uh, apologetic here i will be the first to say, and I'm part of a group which uh, a growing number of Hindus, both in India and abroad, are speaking out and writing against the evils of the caste system. Okay. Uh, there is no question but that uh, the, uh, the hierarchy that is implicit in the caste system has no place in the modern world. Uh, the again, if you look at it historically, there are people who have argued that uh, caste system led to some kind of a stability in classical India, and that it was not in some ways different from the feudal system of right. medieval Europe. We can make all those, mm -hmm. or uh, you know, the worst of all, the apartheid and the slavery and mm -hmm. so on. Mm -hmm. But the point to remember is that casteism has uh, is, uh, is slowly but surely disappearing disappearing aspect of Hinduism. Okay. And uh, that is in the Mahabharata, I always remember where uh, the, there was a statement to the effect that uh, uh, who to all is always good-hearted and whose actions, thoughts, and words are to all beneficent and pleasing, such a one alone is a follower of dharma. Mm. In other words, the definition of the, uh, the dharma 
is more in terms of one's behavior. Okay. And uh, he, the, that is also in the Mahabharata, a statement which says, uh, you may know that the Shudras are considered the lowest of the four and the Brahmins are the highest. Mm-hmm. And in the Mahabharata, there is an interesting statement which says, the Shudra to whom self-control, truthfulness, right conduct, and adherence to truth emerges, him I esteem to be a Brahmana. Mm. Uh, And all through uh, India's history, there have been so many poets and thinkers and philosophers who have spoken out against what can only be called the scourge of casteism. And it is a slow, ingrained process, but I think there are very rapid social changes. I personally, as a Hindu, I will say that I have never been uh, pleased with uh, casteism being part of my own religion. And Mm. although I was born in a Brahmin family, I, uh, in fact, refused to uh, accept the caste uh, title that goes with my name. Mm. And uh, uh, therefore, it is not something that can be defended uh, in any way. Uh, in the modern world, okay. uh, we have changed. The world has changed in many ways, and so does Hinduism as hmm. it ought to, as all civilized religions ought to. So, as you as you often point out in your writing, I mean, India is at one and the same time an ancient civilization and a young nation. And now India is being held up as a great model of globalization's promise. And I, I'd like to ask you, you know, personally, as you watch that, uh, as someone who has been in, a, in the United States for many years, but, but you also have very deep ties to India, um, you know, is that, do you watch that with great pride, with hope? Does it concern you? Um, and I guess I ask that question to you as a religious person as as well as a citizen and uh... well uh, I don't use the term pride I'm not proud okay. of anything that I haven't myself done not ashamed of anything that I haven't done myself uh, but I'm extremely happy I'm happy first that India is uh, re-emerging. It is a renaissance in the literal sense, a rebirth Mm -hmm. of a great civilization because I think India is more than a nation. It is a civilization which has a rich and colorful history which has contributed much to world thought and it is uh, again rising up to its deserved full stature. And the only thing that was holding it back, of course, was its economic, uh, 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 relative economic backwardness uh, during the 19th and early 20th centuries when it was dominated by Great Britain, uh, which uh, uh, brought uh, colonialism, which brought a number of good things to India, but also uh, made India suffer enormously economically and in other ways. And now... My, I have no concerns, uh, you use that word, I rather, there are two things that are important with the re-rise of India and China, mm-hmm. and that is only 
from the global perspective of what we talk about the environmental impact, right. as we all know, the kind of uh, uh, impact footprint that each of us leaves uh, is very much related to the the society in which we live and the energy consumption. And uh, that is a matter of concern, not as an Indian, but as a citizen of the planet. Right. We don't know what the consequences of that will be. And I am also uh, prayerful rather than concerned the fact that if and when India becomes a world power, as I think in all likelihood it will soon become within the before the close of this century, it will live up to its highest moral standards and uh, or at least the ideals of the highest moral standards uh, and that by which I mean not over exert its power and influence on the rest of the world mm -hmm. because that is what can be hurtful to the greatest of nations and uh, that I like to think uh, will come about with an appropriate awakening of the responsibilities of a great power. And uh, so that would be my prayer when India uh, regains uh, her appropriate position and do in the you, Committee of Nations. I think that when, when Americans look at the rest of the world, they assume that that civilized society should have the same kind of separation of church and state, of uh, religion from public structures that uh, that has developed in this democracy. India is often contrasted with the United States as, you know, as such a wildly religious place. Do you, how do you think about the, that and about what is right and proper um, and healthy in a, in, in, in a democracy, in an Indian democracy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think India is uh, uh, unique, perhaps, uh, as a multicultural nation in mm -hmm. the modern world. And it is amazing how it has become so much of like the United States has, was for a long time and still is in some ways a beacon of democracy. And I think India is a beacon of multicultural democracy. Mm -hmm. We have today, as you know, a, a Muslim who is the president of India. Uh, we have a Sikh who is a prime minister. And we have uh, uh, an Italian uh, <laughs> Indian who, right. who plays a very important role. And it's uh, and people, and you know, in spite of what we read in papers and all that, I have... Um, mingled with uh, Indian families in uh, cities like Calcutta, Bombay, and so on, where Hindus and Muslims and Christians, they are friends and they live quite uh, as neighbors and uh, and as very, uh, very close friends, even as families sometimes. So uh, that, that comes from a very long tradition, and uh, that, I think, is the beauty of India. And I also think that this uh, separation of church and state is, in principle, uh, a very important and good thing. And I, I respect the United States for that, as long as it doesn't, even great principles can sometimes go overboard. And uh, if uh, that we don't have in India, when I was there last time, 
a couple of years ago, I went to your school, and I was pleased to see that they still start the schoolwork. All the children stand together and do a prayer. And uh, that was... Uh, and do they do Hindu prayers? or? It was, uh, it was a Hindu prayer, mm-hmm. uh, but it was a prayer for peace. It was not invoking a god or goddess. Mm-hmm. It was more what one calls... Uh, yeah, Shanti Mantra, it's called, a prayer for peace. And that is a very beautiful uh, way of beginning the day, I thought. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was just uh, a nice thing to see, you know, as something starting. Right. What have we not talked about or what have I not asked you about that's really important to you personally that you'd, that you'd like to speak about? Well... The thing that I would probably want to mention is uh, something that you referred to earlier about how I myself uh, sort of, uh, how do you say, live these two... uh, Your two identities as a scientist and a a religious person. Mm -hmm. And that is, uh, I, I want to uh, think about that. If you give me just one moment, okay. because I, I had thought of uh, mentioning that a uh, point or two, mm-hmm. and uh, I want to drink a little water. Okay. So Let me a, ask you this also. The yeah, prayer you just yeah. mentioned for peace, do you know it or do you have it written down? Could you say it for us? Okay. I will try to think of it in a all moment. All right. All right. This is Dave. Just to let you know, I have a 345 with NPR. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're going to finish in five minutes. Okay. I, I just wanted to say that whenever, whenever I am in any worship service, I merge with others into a trans-rational phase where I deeply feel uh, is something beyond, an unfathomable mystery uh, that touches me deeply. Now, I really feel that it is, uh, you know, I have friends, uh, physicists, friends, atheist friends who have often uh, found this rather strange. And uh, I have no problems with how others uh, may feel, but that's just, uh, I have been personally enriched by this kind of thing. And as far as I'm concerned, the uh, thing that uh, worries me is that, you know, every believer proclaims his or her uh, religious heritage with love and pride, and this is fine, and this must be respected. But when this becomes belligerent, it is incumbent upon those who speak for science and religion to call for the arrest of interreligious hate and hurt. Hmm. The dogma that the message of one's own faith system is the only divine voice must be drastically reconsidered by the major religions of the world. See, as I said, we attach primacy to our son, but we also know that there are countless other sons, right. east central to, to its locality, 
therefore religious leaders must stress that no one faith system is final and for all and we cannot with moral uprightness or rational legitimacy proclaim one religion as inferior to another so that is uh, uh my feeling on this whole uh, question of um, different religions in the world okay. you talk you, you wanted about the shanti mantra the peace mm-hmm. it goes something like this uh, may peace reign on earth peace in the atmosphere peace in the all pervading region peace in the spatial quarters peace to the intermediate deities peace in fire peace in the winds peace in the sun peace in the moon peace among the stars peace in the waters peace in the plants peace in the woods peace in the cattle peace in the goats peace in the horses <laughs> peace in humanity peace in those who realize brahman peace 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 may there be peace it is shanti 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 so that is a, <laughs> in other words a and a concern for peace all the time okay All right. Well, I want to thank you so much. I think I've worn you yeah. out, um, but this has been yeah. wonderful. And um, Jody will be letting you know what we're doing with this. And I, I just really appreciate you taking the time. And I've, I've well, loved reading you. you. I've loved getting into all your writings these last this well, last week. Th- thank you. Just here. And yeah. Hope we. Yeah, we'll be in touch. Yes. And you can. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And those books may be later on. Oh, yes. Uh, you'll glance you'll, through them. They'll come and, back. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They'll come back to you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. All the best, Krista. Thank you, you very much. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Have a good day.